Welcome to the Reality Revolution. I am your host, Brian Scott. Today, we're going to talk about prayer, but a little bit different lesson than we've talked about before. We've discussed prayer in several episodes, particularly with Neville Goddard in his book, Prayer, The Art of Believing, and also The Secret of Prayer. I wanted to read a beautiful passage from George A. Maloney in his book, The Breath of the Mystic. The key lesson here is that prayer can also be listening. Oftentimes when we pray, we are doing all the talking. Have you ever been around that friend that does all the talking and never listens? I sometimes feel like God must feel that way with us. We're always telling him what we want, what we don't want. But do we really listen? This art of listening is also a part of prayer. You can call it meditation, but perhaps it's more than that. Prayer is listening. Basic to the Judeo-Christian message is the affirmation that God is a living, loving God. In his unique love for each one of us, he communicates with us by giving himself to us. The fundamental attitude of every Christian is that of listening to God as he communicates himself through his divine word. The Greeks looked upon their gods, but Moses heard the almighty transcendent Yahweh as a voice in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. God speaks in the quiet of our hearts, and we hear him only when we silence the noise of our selfish desires. Elijah was told by God to stand on the mountain before Yahweh. Then Yahweh himself went by. There came a mighty wind, so strong it tore the mountains and shattered the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire there came the sound of a gentle breeze. And when Elijah heard this, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. 1 Kings 19.11-13 The Christian therefore waits in awful expectancy for the Lord to reveal himself. No one can force himself upon the Lord. The Christian must learn to be utter receptivity, waiting for the Lord to come in. His good time, and as he wishes to reveal himself, we must learn the art of arts. To pray is to listen to God. As the Lord drew his beloved disciples aside, and spoke to them about matters that the crowds could not have understood. So he beckons us to come aside and be still. Christian spirituality first developed as a practical, not a theoretical science, as a life lived in Christ. The early disciples had experienced Jesus Christ, the God-man, as the event in their lives. The living word of God, the speech of God, became incarnate and spoke to humans about the life that he came to bring us. This fact was unbelievably good news. The miracle that Irenaeus and after him all the early Greek fathers summarized as the purpose of the incarnation. God became man that man might become God. The early Christians believed and lived their faith in simple obedience to the Logos incarnate who spoke through his church and through the church's written word about him. 
Jules Le Breton speaks of this first period of the church's life as characterized by the directness of a simple, robust soul that has given itself totally to God with its whole heart and all of its thought. At the center of the Christian's life was Christ. Faith was the germ of life. To preach the gospel was to sow the word of life that had been heard in deep prayer. The new life was given in baptism and was conceived as life in Christ, with Christ as the life-giver, the sacraments were carriers of divine life. The early Christians in whom Jesus Christ dwelt with his own divine life were called by St. Ignatius of Antioch, vehicles of Christ, Christophory, carriers of God, himself, Theophoroi. The true disciple of Christ loved his master to the extent of being constantly ready and eager to sacrifice even his life for the Lord. No greater love does man have than to lay down his life for his friend. Ignatius of Antioch writes in his letter to the Romans, Now I begin to be a true disciple through suffering and martyrdom. Towards the end of the 4th century after Roman emperors had become Christians, and when martyrs no longer shed their blood in witness to their faith and love for Christ, a strange phenomenon occurs in Egypt. Prior to Constantine's Edict of Toleration, the pagan world fought to eliminate the Christian by martyrdom. Now it is the hermit who takes up the attack and eliminates the world from his being. The dominant tone is aggression, the darkened prison where Christians wasted away. The amphitheaters where voracious beasts tore the martyrs apart are replaced by the immense desert. For these athletes of Christ, the desert is the twilight zone between the profane world that groaned under the bondage of sin or chaotic disorientation from God and the heavenly Jerusalem of the transfigured world to come. These early monastic fathers did not run away from the world as cowards or spiritual egoists, but rather as conscious co-creators, fighters at the most advanced outposts, men intoxicated with God, as Macarius calls them. They were eschatological pilgrims and prophets, building a community, a pilgrim people of God, a way of life with God in the desert, that would resemble most closely the life to come in the eschaton. Through living in body, in time and space, the monk pointed to a transfigured spiritual existence outside of time and space. We are told by Palladius in his Lausaic history that thousands of men and women left the cities to build large communities according to St. Paul's new creation throughout all of Egypt, Syria, and Mesopotamia. There, these Christian athletes sat day and night before the Lord of the universe and listened to the word of God as he sent down upon the arid desert his life-giving spirit of love. The fierceness of their asceticism, their vigils, fastings, mortifications, and constant prayer attest to their seriousness in listening to the word of God, for they knew that unless the heart is silenced from the demands of self-love, God could not communicate his living word to them. The spirituality of the fathers of the desert shouts out to the terrible jealousy of God who, after giving himself asks all in return from men. The fathers of the desert had met God person to person. He spoke to them continually. They responded to his condescending love to men by a total gift of themselves. Their example points out to us the ideal of Christianity. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, with thy whole mind, with all thy strength. The arid and burning desert flourished as a spiritual meadow, the goal of these ascetics, listening to God, was to recapitulate all things in Christ, as Paul put it, to return to the state of the first man. By centering their true self 
in God. They would fructify the seeds of divinity placed in them when God decreed to make man according to his image and likeness. St. Macarius, in one of his homilies, said, When the apostle urges the putting off of the old man, he means the entire man. He means have other eyes than those the man has, another head than his hands and feet that are no longer his. The fathers of the desert were preparing for the development of a Christian culture and society. Corporate mankind could not encounter God by starting from fallen human nature, infected with an autonomous self-centered oneness and a basic refusal to open itself to God as its supreme reality. God remains exterior to the individual as well as society to the extent that the passions are interior and self-possessive. Paradoxically, the ascent toward God begins with a descent into oneself. Charles Peggy summarizes the attitude of the contemplative in the desert in his work Eve. You know that God alone gives himself, and that man's being unceasingly decreases, and that God's being unceasingly goes back to its eternal source and its deep night, and of itself produces its own growth and man's salvation in the world's strength. The paradox of the desert experience is that man must break through the initial fear of leaving his world of sense and psychic experiences that so easily assures him of his own self-sufficiency to descend into his true ego and there find God the source of his being speaking his eternal word and the loving surrender of self-communication through his spirit of love. St. Arsenius the Great has always been considered an example of the perfect Hesychast, the Christian who silenced his heart in order to listen to God's word speak within. Hesychast comes from the Greek word hesychia, meaning tranquility or peace. Hesychia is that state in which the Christian through grace and his own intense asceticism reintegrates his whole being into a single ego that is then placed completely under the direct influence of God dwelling within him. Arsenius, as the story is told in the lives of the fathers, while still at the imperial court of Constantinople, prayed to God in these words, Lord, lead me along a way of life where I can be saved. A voice said to him, Arsenius, flee men, and you will be saved. The same Arsenius now become a hermit in this new life of silence, made again his same prayer and heard a voice which said to him, Arsenius, flee, keep silence, remain tranquil. These are the roots of impeccability. This in brief formed the basis of the hesychastic spirituality. Those who aspired to attain this most intimate union with God, revealing himself in the depths of their being, had to flee from noise through both exterior and interior silence, which in the words of St. Basil is the beginning of purity of the heart. St. John Climacus further defined silence as first of all, detachment from concern with regard to necessary and unnecessary things, secondly, as assiduous prayer, and thirdly, as the unremitting action of the prayer in the heart. Prayer of the heart is the unremitting consciousness of God's abiding presence deep within man. It brings about the state of tranquility, the quelling of all inordinate movements and desires, passions and thoughts. The heart in scriptural language is the seed of man's life of all that touches him in the depths of his personality, all his affections, his passions, his desires, the seed of all his knowledge, his thoughts. It is in his heart that man meets God in the I-Thou relationship. The word of God, Paul tells us, is something alive and active. It cuts like a double-edged sword, but more finely, 
It can slip through the place where the soul is divided from the spirit or joints from the marrow. It can judge the secret emotions and thoughts. No created thing can hide from him. Everything is uncovered and open to the eyes of the one to whom we must give account of ourselves. Hebrews 4.12.13 Silence and tranquility are necessary in order that the Christian may hear the word of God, which separates man's human way of judging reality from God's way. The condition that served as a criterion of one's docility in listening to the word of God was measured by the fathers of the desert in terms of resting in the Lord or quieting all inordinate desires. This is the state of passionate indifference, to use the term of Telehard de Chardin, whereby the Christian surrenders himself totally to the God dwelling and revealing himself within the living temple of God. The state of listening is comparable to the seventh day of rest that the Lord took after his labors of creating the world. It is the new day of rest, the day of the Kairos, time of salvation in which man opted always to do that which most pleased the Heavenly Father. The promise of reaching the place of rest he had for them still holds good, and none of you must think that he has come too late for it. We received the good news exactly as they did, but hearing the message did them no good because they did not share the faith of those who listened. There must still be, therefore, a place of rest reserved for God's people, the seventh-day rest, since to reach the place of rest is to rest after your work as God did after His. We must, therefore, do everything we can to reach the place of rest, or some of you might copy this example of disobedience and be lost. Hebrews 4, 11. Basic to listening to the Word of God in prayer is the ability to pass beyond man's habitual reasoning about God and about man's duties toward God. C.S. Lewis, in his letters to Malcolm, describes this way of destroying idols and images of God in order to be open to God's fresh revelation. Only God himself can let the bucket down into the depths in us. And on the other side, he must constantly work as the iconoclast. Every idea of him we form, we must in mercy shatter. The most blessed result of prayer would be to rise thinking, but I never knew before, I never dreamed. I suppose it was at such a moment that Thomas of Aquinas said, of all of his theology, it reminds me of straw. The Christian must build within himself the type of cell where solitude reigns and where he can come face to face with himself and with God in utter openness, in utter receptivity, and without any preconceived ideas of what Jesus Christ, the word of the Father, will reveal to him that day. Jesus Christ, the mighty word that goes forth from the mouth of Yahweh and returns fulfilled, is so ineffable, so beyond any conceptualization, that as soon as we think we have understood his message, in that moment we have introduced noise. The moment we settle down like the Israelites with the flesh pots of Egypt and assert that now we know Jesus Christ, then we have lost him. Pilgrims in the desert cannot afford to settle down in a fixed, secure pattern of knowledge and worship and revelation. God is so overwhelmingly great that no human being can know him completely. We know him by not knowing him, by not limiting God's power to reveal and communicate himself to us in any way he wishes. He is love infinite, and no one can love him enough to say that now he can stop growing in love. Knowing and loving God means the desert experience of meeting the awesome God on his own terms. It necessitates a kenosis, an emptying, in order that God may fill the void. Thomas Merton describes this experience as a higher kind of listening, not a receptivity to a certain kind of message, but a general emptying 
that waits to realize the fullness of the message of God within its own apparent void. The true contemplative remains empty because he knows that he can never expect or anticipate the word that will transform his darkness into light. This way of listening to the word is the apophatic theology of the Greek fathers. It is not mere negation of man's ability to comprehend God by his own power of intellect. It is a positive experience in which we come to know God by not knowing him. In our poverty and utter creatureliness, in our sinfulness and alienation from the Father, we realize that to know God is beyond our power. As the Christian develops in contemplation, he realizes more and more that God must reveal himself. Man can only wait in the desert of his nothingness, hoping to receive God as he wishes to make himself known. Not only is the way of knowing by unknowing found in the tradition of the Eastern Christian mystics, but it is also the common heritage of all true mystics, both of the East and the West. In the Hindu Upanishadic literature, we read, He is not known by him who knows him, not understood by him but who understands. He alone contemplates him who has ceased to contemplate him. In all knowledge, as though by intuition, the wise man finds him. It is in him alone, the Atman, the breath, that each one is strong. It is in knowing him alone that one becomes immortal. Other than thinking beyond non-thinking, unknown when he is known, recognized only when all has disappeared. Meister Eichhardt had been described by Hans Jürs von Balthasar as a Christian Buddhist. This 14th century Rhenish Dominican was certainly influenced by the apophatic mysticism of Pseudo-Dionysius, the anonymous disciple of St. Gregory of Nyssa. Eckert writes, If a person wants to withdraw himself with all his powers internal and external, then he will find himself in a state in which there are no images and no feelings of compulsion in him, and he will therefore stand without any activity internal or external. In the writings of as orthodox a mystic as John Rusbjok, the Flemish 14th century writer, we find the same apophatic emptying of thoughts induced by our own reasoning process and an attentive listening to the word of God. In his Mirror of Eternal Salvation, he writes, Above the reason, in the depths of the intelligence, the simple eye of the contemplative soul is always open. It contemplates and gazes at the light, the word, the pure gaze enlightened by light itself, eye against eye, mirror against mirror, image against image. Can we say that the great Spanish mystics of the 16th century as St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila were under an Eastern influence? Or are we closer to the truth in saying that all genuine mystics of whatever religious creed share in the same experience once the contemplative purifies his heart and enters therein to contemplate the inner light? St. John of the Cross expresses his apophatic mysticism in these terms. The brighter and purer is the supernatural and divine light. The more it darkens the soul, and the less bright and pure is it, the less dark it is to the soul. Yet this may well be understood if we consider what has been proved, namely, that the brighter and more manifest in themselves are supernatural things, the darker are they to our understanding. St. Teresa, with balanced judgment, speaks of the necessity of not stopping our intellectual activity except when God powerfully takes over. In mystical theology of which I spoke before, the understanding ceases from its acts for God suspends it. We must neither imagine nor think that we can of ourselves bring about this suspension. That is, I say, that must not be done, nor must we allow the understanding to cease from its acts, for in the case we shall be stupid and cold. For when the Lord suspends the understanding and makes it cease from its acts, 
then he puts it before it what astonishes and occupies so that without making any reflection it can understand and comprehend what we could only comprehend in years with all the efforts in the world to be led by god into such a darkness of our own powers requires that humility which a pilgrim in the desert learns we know he is weak they are enemies all about him he cries out to his lord for mercy and pity he hungers for the presence of the lord he must learn as thomas merton has so often suggested in his spiritual writings a sense of poverty and of sickness that ultimately is a healthy sign of a detached pilgrim in the journey to the fatherland blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven only when the contemplative enters into a vivid experience of his own utter poverty and sickness of his incompleteness before his maker can he begin to experience something of god's richness one of the richest and spiritually most profound themes in both the old and new testaments is that of exodus because this theme employs a basic archetypal symbol the dialectic of a starting point of confinement and lesser development moving to separation and then climaxing in a return it evokes a resonance in the heart of every human being especially the contemplative in the exodus as interpreted by christian tradition not only do the israelites pass from slavery to full service of yahweh after he has delivered them from idolatry and decisively established them as his chosen people but every christian constantly undergoes in prayer this experience of deliverance of return Ernest Renan states that monotheism was born between the vastness of the desert floor and the desert sky. For the Christian contemplative, the Trinity becomes a living reality through an exodus experience of leaving oneself in order to move under the power of the Spirit, symbolized in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, into the darkness where God reveals himself through a new way of knowing God speaks but his word is a living reality, an experience in purified love. He comes to heal us, to give us life that we might have it more abundantly he comes to feed us not with manna but with his own life but first we must hunger after this living bread he is the rock which flows living water sweet and nourishing but only after we have thirsted for this water a vivid sense of poverty and sickness within the depths of our being is the sure means of touching the merciful heart of yahweh the bridegroom will come only when the song of songs can say I will seek him whom my heart loves i sought but did not find him have you seen him whom my heart loves therefore essential to the exodus experience is the excruciating sense of absence and separation which builds up within the contemplation those awful searing burning desires that touch the mighty tender heart of god and promise a coming reunion saint gregory built up his mystical theology especially in his classic the life of moses around this simple theme of apectasis using saint paul's quotation to the philippians i can assure you my brothers i'm far from thinking that i have already won all i can say is that i forget the past and i strain ahead for what is still to come i'm racing for the finish for the prize to which god calls us upward to receive in christ jesus philippians 3:13 the greek word that saint paul uses for straining ahead or stretching forward is apectomenos our english translation is quite weak compared to the original greek the greek prefix implies a dynamic pouncing upon a feverish possessing of a desired good the prefix hints at the outward movement that is hunger for the electable unpossessable god to the extent that we experience our poverty and sickness our hunger for health and life increases 
we entertain a constant restlessness and dissatisfaction with the degree of love of God that we have attained. For though we possess Him, yet we experience the anguish of separation that increases all the more our hunger. This is the tension that the desert produces, and without it there is no deep growth in contemplation. St. John of the Cross describes beautifully the longing for greater union with God without whom he cannot live. I live, yet no true life I know, and living thus expectantly I die because I do not die. Within myself no life I know, and without God I cannot live. The sense of poverty detaches us from all inordinate clinging to persons or things. It is the purity of heart of the Beatitudes that will guarantee seeing God whom we have desired above all else. Meister Eichhardt paraphrases this beatitude. To be the proper abode for God and fit for God to act in, a man should also be free from all things and actions, both inwardly and outwardly. Once purified by a vivid sense of the allness of God in his awesome transcendence, the mountain of perfection and a corresponding sense of his own littleness, the valley of his imperfection, the pilgrim now becomes a true listener and interpreter of the word of God. A prophet in the Old Testament sense is not primarily one who tells the future, but rather the Nabi was God's representative. Having yielded himself totally to the message of God, he was able to return to men and represent God, make God present to his people. Here we see why the fathers of the desert believed that the medium must become the message. The prophet of the desert was not only communicating a word, but he himself was assimilated into the living word of God. Paul said it briefly for all prophets, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 God possessed his prophet in the inmost depths of his being. His words, his knowledge were given him by the Spirit of God breathing within him, letting the word go forth from him. The prophet experienced this word by which Yahweh made the heavens their whole array by the breath of his mouth. He spoke and it was created. He commanded and there it stood. Psalms 33, 6, 8. A breath from him and the waters flow. This is the God who makes his word known to Jacob, gives Israel ruling and decree. Psalms 147:4-8. The essential conversion metanoia offered to that pilgrim contemplative in the desert is always one that makes him pass from the visible world into the invisible world of the almighty uncreated energies of God as the foundation of all reality, the source of happiness, joy, and love. In every prophetic conversion, we open ourselves up more and more to the reality of the divine persons, and we discover in experiential, God-given knowledge that the Trinity is the plenitude of all things. The prophet begins to experience a breakdown in the habitual conceptualization of God as an object outside of ourselves, and thus he realizes that God permeates all things with his energies. The Isha Upanishad speaks of the all-in-allness of God that ever abides in the depths of man so that there remains nowhere inside the prophet where God is not. Plenitude everywhere, plenitude there, here, from plenitude comes forth plenitude, and in everywhere one with itself there remains plenitude. One of the great Byzantine mystics, St. Simeon, the new theologian, describes his interpretation of God in his loving energies within the being of the contemplative, frightful thing in truth, master frightful beyond all expression, that the light which the world does not possess shows itself to me, that the one who is not within this world loves me, and that I love the one who is nowhere in visible things. I am seated on my bed while being beyond the world, and while in the middle of my cell the one who is beyond the world. I see him present here, I see him and I speak to him, 
and dare I say it, I love him, and he on his part loves me. I eat, I live on this contemplation alone, and being but one with him, I pass through the heavens. That this be true and certain, I know it. But where, when this body, that is what I do not know. I know that the one who remains motionless comes down. I know that the one who remains invisible appears to me. I know it, the one who is separated from all creation takes me with himself and hides me in his arms, and from then on I am beyond the entire world. But in my turn I, a mortal, I, so unimportant in the world, I contemplate in myself completely the creator of the world, and I know that I shall never die since I am within life, and that in its fullness I have life which gushes within me. He is in my heart, he lives in heaven, he shows himself equally resplendent and there. The life of prayer or contemplation is simply the realization of God's presence in us. He must not be conceived as an object, but as the source of our very life's breath. He breathes in our breath by his loving actions of creation, preservation, sanctification. The prophet in the desert learns by experience that the whole created world has its interior, the inscaping presence of the Trinity. The world is charged with his divine energies, which are working to recreate the world by fulfilling the plan lovingly intended by the Trinity from all eternity. St. James tells us that every good gift is from above and comes down to us from the Father of lights, and hence it behooves us to render him thanks and an adoration. Our poverty fills us with joy in experiencing the great richness of the Father who begets his children and bestows upon them a universe of manifold beauty and riches. In him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28 God is hidden in all of creation, but he reveals himself to the children who have eyes to see him everywhere. Delahard de Chardin beautifully expresses the vision of the purified prophet of the desert when he writes, Jesus Christ is shining diaphanously through the whole world for those who have the eyes to see. The presence of God is coterminous with the whole being. God is not a being among other things. He is the source from which all beings exist. He is the first, and there is no second. But this same Trinity, the source breathing his love that begets his word, is, as St. Augustine says, more intimate to me than I to myself. He tells us, enter into yourself. It is in the interior man where truth is found. We inwardly experience the mystery of living in the Trinity, for the Trinity dwells within us. The relation of mutual indwelling blossoms in a continual loving process of life shared between the divine persons and ourselves. The Spirit, as St. Arrhenius says, comes to seize us and gave us to the Son, and the Son gives us to the Father. Jesus himself had already spoken his prophetic word, If anyone loves me, we will come to him and make in him our abode. Prayer is the awareness of this holy presence, and it is the adoration and completely self-surrendering worship that follow from this awareness. The experience of God is prayer in the delectatio victorious, the conquering taste that Augustine describes as the only power capable of rooting the delights of fulfilling our own selfish desires. In an attitude of profound reverence, adoration, and humility, we sit and behold life itself unfolding within us. The acceptance of our total weakness and our inability to seize God by our own means creates within us an abandonment to the action of the Spirit who allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, in a true experience of being wanted and loved by omnipotence itself. The Spirit makes us realize that at the heart of matter, 
and of the whole created world, including ourselves. The Trinity lives a mystery of love, the love of three persons in their reciprocal relationship to each other. Paul Tillich has expressed in modern psychological terms of self-actualization this mystery that each prophet contemplative begins to experience in prayer. The triadic movement towards self-actualization is a movement of love. God the Father, the abyss of all potentiality, breathes forth his spirit of love, and the Logos becomes the actualized meaning of God and the potential of God, realized through the spirit in whom God goes out of himself and returns to unity through his self-actualization in the Logos, his perfect image. The mystic realizes that at the basis of reality is the drive toward that communion, our love, which exists between persons in mutual self-surrender. Separation is overcome by self-actualization through love. We experience this personal love of God, giving himself to each one of us through his realized meaning, the word and his unifying force of love, the spirit, and this experience is what makes us grow in true existence. The contemplative has had the words of St. John authenticated in his prayer. We ourselves have known and put our faith in God's love towards ourselves. God is love, and anyone who lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. As we grow in prayer, we realize more and more the complete gratuity of God's great love for us. In this process of growth, God's love and God himself become for us the Trinity, pouring itself out toward us, creating us anew in a living relationship of loving response to our creator the source of life and love the prophet listens to the word of god which tells of his great love for us saint paul expresses the prophetic word of god in these words blessed be god the father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings of heaven in christ before the world was made he chose us chose us in christ to be holy and spotless and to live through love in his presence determining that we should become his adopted sons through Jesus Christ for his own kind purpose to make us praise the glory of his grace, his free gift of us in the beloved, such as the richness of the grace which he has showered on us in all wisdom and insight. Now you too in him have heard the message of the truth and the good news of your salvation and have believed it, and you too have been stamped with the seal of the Holy Spirit of the promise, the pledge of our inheritance, which brings freedom for those whom God has taken for his own to take and make his glory praised. Ephesians 1, 3-14 Many Christians wish to preach the word of God before they have sat before the throne of God and listened to the word tell us about God's wonderful plan. Americans are especially prone to be doers, performers. We must learn to sit before God and hear of his infinite love for us and his whole creation. Then we will be able to give our prophetic response. With Isaiah the prophet, we will be able to answer, Here I am, send me. Isaiah 6 9. St. Paul, again in the epistle to the Ephesians, returns to the amazing love of God for us and the need on our part to realize all that he has done for us. We must learn that it is God's message, not ours, that we preach. Paul writes, But God loved us with so much love that he was generous with his mercy when we were dead. Through our sins, he brought us to life with Christ. It is through grace that you have been saved and raised us up with him and gave us a place with him in heaven in Christ Jesus. This was to show for all ages to come through his goodness towards us in Christ Jesus how infinitely rich he is in grace, because it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith not by anything of your own, but by a gift from God, not by anything that you have done, so that 
Nobody can claim the credit. We are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus to live the good life as from the beginning He had meant for us to live. Ephesians 24.10 Each experience in prayer begins with an act of faith that God has already done so much, done all in loving us and in giving us His Son, Jesus. Thus the Christian learns to relax in the Lord, resting entirely upon Him. The good news is that God truly loves us. He wants us to learn this only by experience in sitting and listening to the voice of Christ's Spirit present within us. In the parable of the prodigal son, the older son never really fell in love with the father. He worked for him as a servant would, demanding quid pro quo. The father could never be a father to him because the son never let the love of the father pour over him and change his value structure. The younger son, however, crushed by his sinfulness and purified by his alienation and separation from his father, let the father be his father. The father did everything for him and rejoiced to do so. The desert experience teaches us that the prodigal son learned by being a pilgrim separated from the father's home and love by his own doing, namely the desire to be independent of his father's love. But returning to the father's home, he becomes docile and supplied to the father's slightest wish. No longer is he under the law of a tyrant, but he is liberated by an experience of forgiving love so that he can return love for love. The prophet then sits joyfully in the presence of his father and hears about the great love the father has for him. Then that prophetic word moves to make our response. We move outward to build a community founded on the same joy and love we have experienced through the gratuitous love of the father for his children. Having been accepted in love by God, we have a sense of real identity. We can go out as God's representatives and bear witness to this great divine love for all men. The existential word is being spoken in our daily lives. It is a continuation of the same prophetic word of scriptures that lives in our hearts. The word is revealed in every event of our lives as we experience the Trinity unfolding its self-communication throughout all creation. The prophet then beholds God's great love in the beautiful smile of a child, in the violence of a storm, in the calm serenity of a moon-bathed lake, in the suffering body of a dying person. We no longer need to leave the world, for we are now co-creators of that existential word. As Paul says, the Christ we reconcile the whole universe to the Father. We unite ourselves with others who have heard the word of God, and we offer ourselves in loving service with the phylum of love, the church, Seated beneath the tree of life in a new Eden, the contemplative communicates with God in the cool of the evening. He seeks to bring the whole of creation into the full harmony intended by God when he commanded man to order and subjugate the whole human cosmos. Having returned to the world, the prophet now sees the world through different eyes. He sees it being transfigured slowly by that inner life of God that inhabited men intoxicated with God. As Macarius described the fathers of the desert, the message of the contemplation is clearly this. To the degree that one has purified and disciplined himself to sit before the Lord and listen to his word. To that extent, he can stand before the world and witness to the word in living service. Prayer as listening reveals to us the need to become pilgrims, poor, detached, purified, hungry for God, stretching out to possess the unpossessable that makes all possession vain. It teaches us the need then to become prophets of the word, meditating on the word spoken in scripture and relieved in the mystery of the indwelling trinity. We are sent forth as witnesses to the same existential word being spoken in the world as we yield ourselves to the process of bringing forth that word in its fullness. 
the Mother of God Mary Most Pure will always be the model and archetype of for all Christians who aspire to become contemplatives. She was first a virgin over whom the Spirit hovered. She conceived by the Spirit, and the Word was incarnated within her. Then she became the witness to that Word as she set out at that time and went as quickly as she could to the town in the hill country of Judah. She brought forth the Word and gave it to the world through her humble service. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy Word. Now, you may have find some of that confusing and overly religious. I just find his research very dedicated and it's an interesting addition to the reality revolution library but what we can see through the ages through many different saints and theological experts is that there is something to be said for sitting in the stillness going into the nothingness letting go of everything we actually think we understand about god and truly understanding the power of god there's something to be said in doing this. And in so doing, we understand the love of God. And we can see that all of the great prophets of the past and those that have found connection to God didn't do it by praying, by saying words. They did it by withdrawing and listening. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it prayer or meditation. But in that silence, you'll hear that word. It will come to you at some point in time. And all you have to do is sit in stillness and listen. The poverty he's talking about is not the poverty of money. It's the poverty of the world. It's understanding that you don't need anything. And it's the poverty of love. When you look for love from other people, you're not going to find the love of God. It's moving to the desert. As we see the great prophets went to the desert and had these great revelations. It's separating yourself from the world to find God. It's in that stillness that you can find God. So just listen. Listen, and you will find God. You can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com. And welcome to The Reality Revolution.